Hello, and welcome to Talking Intellectual History. My name is Dr. Paul Sagar, and I teach political theory at King's College London. Today, I'm joined by Alison McQueen, who is Associate Professor of Political Science at Stanford University. Hi, Alison. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Today, we're going to be discussing Alison's 2018 monograph, Political Realism in Apocalyptic Times, which was published by Cambridge University Press. We're going to start with a discussion about the themes of that book, but given its, in many ways, obvious or perhaps not so obvious, as Alison may persuade us later, relevance um, to the current climate in world politics, this seems a particularly opportune time to reflect on what we might be able to learn today from the history of political thought. But Alison, I was hoping to start off by discussing what you call the uh, the apocalyptic imaginary in the history of political thought. Because although you discuss some canonical thinkers, in particular the 16th century Florentine uh, political thinker Niccolò Machiavelli, the 17th century English thinker Thomas Hobbes, and the 20th century German émigré thinker Hans Morgenthau, one thing you want to say is that despite their historical distance and the difference in their thought, there is something that ties these thinkers together in a certain way. So if you could tell us a little bit more about that, that would be great. Sure. Well, maybe let's, if we just start with the the common sense idea of the apocalypse, um, what we may think of is the uh, that REM song that haunted uh I don't know if it haunted your youth, it haunted mine. It's the end of the world as we know it. Now that's a common sense understanding of the apocalypse. Now uh, that end of the world could be good or it could be bad. In the book of Revelation in the Bible, it is, uh, there's a positive dimension to it. We're told that God will wipe every tear from our eyes, that death will be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more. Those things will have passed away. Of course, we also get images of the end of the world that are much uh, darker, where the fate of humanity is, uh, is a bleak one. Think of the end of Dr. Strangelove, for instance. And so I think that uh, there can be a lot of variation in how we imagine those end of the world scenarios. But what do they share? Often when someone thinks apocalyptically, they are anticipating an end of the world that's gonna come soon. It's imminent. Think of what Jesus tells his followers that the end of the world will happen within their lifetimes that it will be cataclysmic. For an apocalypticist, the world ends in a bang, not a whimper, right? Uh, That it will bring an end to some kind of real or perceived evil. For Christians, this would have been the, the, uh, the evils of sin. For the writer of the book, author of the book of Revelation, it would be the evils of Roman imperial rule come to a cataclysmic end. An apocalypse is a rupture in the temporal continuity of history, but it's also, in its just most literal sense, it is an unveiling. It is a revelation. And so power relationships, structures of domination, uh, the narrative course of history is revealed to us in in those moments. Now, you might think this is all you read about it in the book of Revelation or in the Jewish tradition in the book of Daniel has a has an apocalyptic dimension to it. We might say, well, how does how does the, do those sets of ideas that seem so particular to a certain group of religious believers, how do those get to work in the history of political thought? And, and that's where I suggest that the idea of an apocalyptic imaginary might help us. So if we, if we think of an imaginary as the way that we collectively make sense of and imagine our common existence, the way we think about ourselves in space and time, uh, I'm not talking here about the textual self-consciously reasoned ways we make sense of our existence, but more the unstructured, the inarticulate ways we make sense of the world. Think about the images and the stories and the legends that accumulate over, over the ages. And that's how I think the apocalyptic imaginary stays with us, stays with us today and throughout the course of uh, the history of political thought. The, the images from the book of Revelation 
are passed down through our collective psyche. So even for those who've never read this very strange book in the Bible, the horsemen of the, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the rivers of blood, the trampling of the grapes of wrath, uh, the plagues of locusts, um, those images are still with us, even for people who've never read the book. And they're with us because the apocalypse works as an imaginary in that way. There was a great um, 10th century who, um, illustrator who did illuminations for a commentary on Revelation. And he called the visions of the book of Revelation picture-making words. And they are, and it's the pictures and the imagery that has been bequeathed to us and that we still often use to make sense of our world. And I think in addition to the picture, the picture-making quality of it, it's also the apocalyptic imaginary is a way of narrativizing or implotting our, uh, our, our crises. So in any given age, if you're facing a crisis, you can latch on to the apocalyptic imaginary as a way to make sense of it, as a way to implot what, uh, to implot the challenges and crises of any era. The, uh, there's a story to the apocalypse. It's a story of crisis and judgment and sometimes vindication. And we're still drawn to that plot. Just look at any list of American summer blockbusters to see the continued appeal of apocalyptic thinking. That's, that's just so well put. And I think that last point you made about um, potential vindication was one of the parts of the book that struck me particularly strongly is that the, the narrative of, of apocalypse often comes with a, with a promise of purification, at least for some, at least for some potentially. For the yeah. But we may have to go through an ordeal but on the other side of that ordeal will be some kind of vindication. And that, that really struck me as ringing so true. And as you say, that this has permeated so many aspects of our culture, and you just need to look at the average block, summer blockbuster to, to see that. But how did it play out, for example, in the case of, of someone like Machiavelli, um, who, on the face of it, many people would be surprised to find that, to hear that Machiavelli uh, engaged with apocalyptic thought. But, but you know, as your book shows, he, he really did. So, so tell us a little bit about that. Well, there was a lot of apocalyptic enthusiasm in Florence in the late 15th century into the early 16th. Uh, if you think about what Italy was going through at this time, Italy, as the uh, 15th century drew to a close, is being torn apart internally by wars. Florence, where Machiavelli lives, is undergoing some domestic political crises. They're reaching, and by 1494, they're at the end of 60 years of Medici rule. They've got a foreign threat. The... Uh, the French are coming to make good their claim on the Neapolitan uh, kingdom, and they want to come through Florence, and they're going to come through with a, uh, a, a, um, a force the size and strength of which would have been really unimaginable uh, to Florentines. And so Machiavelli is seeing all of this unfold. And one of the things he sees is how certain political and religious actors are able to seize on an apocalyptic imaginary to make sense of this. The most important one for Machiavelli, of course, is Girolamo Savonarola, the famous unarmed prophet from chapter six of The Prince. And I think Savonarola's genius lay in the fact that he was able to use ap the apocalyptic imaginary, as I call it, to, to make sense of the crises that Florence was undergoing. They're, they're, they're seeing their political system crumble. The French are about to arrive. They're worried about that. And, and Savonarola makes sense of it for them. He tells them, look, this is a scourge from God. Florence has been particularly sinful. They've fallen away from the, the way of Christ. And Savonarola says, behold, the sword of the Lord falling swiftly, falling quickly and swiftly. And 
Initially, Savonarola is very doom and gloom. There's not a lot of redemption in this narrative. And he's forced into a funny situation that because the French come, Charles VIII comes, they, they stay a bit in Florence, it gets a bit tense, but in the end, it's actually Savonarola who's sent to get him to move along and to spare Florence. And he's successful at that. So he has been the agent to disconfirm his own prophecy. It wasn't the scourge he'd been warning about. And so he rejiggers his message and he says, well, actually, the, the, if this is just proof. The fact that we were spared is proof that Florence is uh, is an elect city. It will be the new Jerusalem foretold in the book of Revelation. There's still some scourge and tribulation coming, but after that, there will be redemption. And uh, and it's, it's not just Machiavelli who's fascinated with this. The Savonarola message really appealed to a lot of the civic humanists in Florence at the time. Savonarola had a big following. The painter, Sandro Botticelli, incorporates Savonarolan themes into his paintings. He even throws, in, a, in what is you know, a tragic loss for the world of art, throws some of his own paintings into Savonarola's bonfires of the vanities. So he gets a big following. And Machiavelli watches this, I think, with great interest. And the place where I see this uh, his his engagement with that kind of apocalyptic thinking come really clearly into view is in the final chapter of the Prince. So Machiavelli has seen all these events unfold in the um, in the crisis of 1494. Fast forward to 1512 and 1513. Again, Italy is rocked by, uh, by some internal conflict and wars. Florence is again at a moment of political transition. The short-lived Republic that came about in 1494 has crumbled. The Medici have come back with the help of, uh, with the help of the Pope and a Spanish army. And Machiavelli is once again trying to make sense of this, uh, this crisis in Florence. And the, of course, a lot of the prints is taken up with making sense of this, but where, where you see it most is in the very strange final chapter of the prince. Everyone puzzles about, you know, what is going on in that chapter? It's, it has much more the language of redemption. It has uh, a dense bunch of um, references to God that we might not expect having read the rest of the prince. And what does Machiavelli tell us in the final chapter? He tells us that Italy is in a terrible state, that it's more enslaved than the Hebrews, more servile than the Persians, more dispersed than the Athenians, without a head, without order, beaten, despoiled, pillaged, and having endured ruin of every sort. But what else does he tell us? He tells us that Italy waits for her redeemer to usher in a new world. And I think that, that that is an apocalyptic implotment. I mean, we talked before about the narrative structure of apocalyptic thinking. Machiavelli is borrowing something of that apocalyptic plot to make sense of the crises going on in Florence and more broadly in Italy. And that, that apocalyptic implotment makes the crises of the present intelligible. It gives them meaning. It says, yes, things are bad right now, but this is, going, this is just the prelude, the necessary prelude to a, a, a wonderful age of redemption. Now, I think that by the time Machiavelli writes his later work, and especially the discourses on Livy, he's really turned away from that way of thinking about politics. There are several moments in the discourses on Livy where he talks about, you know, what do you do when a polity descends into corruption? And he admits you could hope for a redemptive figure. And he tells us that's often a false hope. The, those those kinds of redemptive figures are seductive, but they generally end up achieving their ends through horrendous and unimaginable bloodshed. 
And so instead he says, just, you know, don't think about, don't think about the world, political world apocalyptically. What is politics, he asks us? Politics is just about the struggle and the variability um, of, the, of the political world. Um, the fantasy that we can get away from that struggle is just that, it's a fantasy. And so think about how Machiavelli celebrates struggle and tumult in the discourse. It's not something that we should wish away. It's not something that we should hope will end. It was the tumults between the nobles and the plebs that kept Rome free. So I, I think that Machiavelli's journey is from an initial flirtation with apocalyptic thinking to a rejection of it for its very real dangers. That's that's fascinating because one thing that your book puts on the agenda is even people like me who are only relatively passingly familiar with Machiavelli's texts, we're all very much the two Machiavelli's problem. How could this guy who wrote a handbook for a prince to conquer an Italian city-state and rule it, you know, in, in a, what we would call an authoritarian way, be the same guy who wrote the discourses on Livy, which, if anything, is an exhortation to Republican self-government. How can a guy have written the same two books? And at the very least, you deepen that mystery um, by showing that not only did he write these two very different books, but he seems to have had an extremely different attitude um, to, I mean, one's written before the other, of course, but they're published the other way around. And I always forget which way around it is. So you'll have to remind us. <laughs> but, but if you could, <laughs> um, but, 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 but just but more seriously to, uh, to ask you, what do you think happens there? Um, why? I mean, maybe we can't recover this. Maybe this is one of those points in intellectual history where we don't have the evidence. But you put it as a flirtation. You said, you know, he flirts with this apocalyptic imaginary and then repudiates it. Um, do, do you have any, even if it's just a, a hunch as to what, what happened there? Why the, why this different Machiavelli in one text from the other? As, you know, in addition to the, the old chestnut of how could the guy have written the, these two separate works in the first place anyway? I think part of it, I, I'm really drawn to a reading of The Prince. This is not a popular reading, and I think it's considered to be a, a sort of, you know, politics 101 reading of The Prince, but that I, I do read Machiavelli in some ways as an early social scientist. I think that The Prince is a book that is aimed at making the political world intelligible. He's trying to come up with general rules that will allow us to both understand and master the world. Now, I, I, I think a lot of people think that's too easy a reading, but I would just, if, if they're inclined to think that, I would, I would encourage, encourage everyone to read Machiavelli's correspondence with Francesco Vittori, where part of what they're debating is, how do we make, is it possible to make systematic sense of the political world? Is it possible to render politics intelligible and predictable and subject to human mastery? And Vittori thinks it's not. He says at many points in the correspondence, look, let's just stop talking. This is pointless. We can't render the political world intelligible. And Machiavelli comes back again and again to insisting that one can. And I think that's part of what he's trying to do in The Prince. But as we know, it, it's, I mean, as any social scientist knows, that's really hard. Um, a, lot, a lot of us often feel like we're involved in a, in a somewhat futile task. And I, and I think you see that struggle at work in The Prince. Machiavelli proposes a general rule and then he follows through with some examples and then he realizes the examples you don't necessarily prove the rule. And then the rule gets qualified and amended. And um, sometimes the examples you know, completely undermine the rule. Um, and uh, you see this with the, the love and fear, you see it with his discussion of cruelty. And, and I think, so then what is he supposed to do? If, ge if general rules and laws are not doing it for him, how else can you make the political world intelligible? Well, then you get in chapters 24 and 25, this uh, discussion of fortune. Maybe if we can't render the political world intelligible with general rules and laws, we could at least try and 
kind of conceptualize the variability we're dealing with, the kind of conceptualize contingency. And he offers us these various metaphors for fortune. They're very different sorts of metaphors. Fortune is a river. Well, how do you deal with a river? You, you want to be a prudent planner. You build dams so that you're ready for when the river floods. And then he offers us this very different metaphor that fortune is a woman and she must be beaten down and dominated. And that, that seems very different than the kind of prudent dam builder we just heard about. Uh, and so I think, I, I think that his discussion of fortune, he's not quite able to render um, contingency and variability intelligible. And that's then when we get this resort to a kind of redemptive, apocalyptic narrative. If you can't make the political world intelligible with general rules and laws, if you can't make fortune understandable and predictable, then what can you do? Well, you can at least make the crises of the present meaningful by implotting them in this apocalyptic narrative. And so that, that's the way I read it. And so then you think, well, what, what's, what's happened to him by the time he writes the discourses? I think he's just, he's, he's, um, he's given up on some aspects of that social scientific project and thrown himself much more into history and to, uh, to an, you know, just a much fuller embrace of the unpredictability of the, of the political world. You still get some attempts at generalization in the discourses on Livy, sure. But I think that that project of intelligibility in the prince that was so much came so much out of his uh, correspondence with Vittori. I think he's just that has loosened its grip on him by the time he writes the discourses. Of course, the other possibility, and and it's one I don't completely foreclose in the book, is that his use of apocalyptic. Um, imagery and the apocalyptic imaginary in the final chapter of The Prince is purely strategic. It could be that he's saying to the Medici, hey, you know, if you want to do this right, here's the kind of rhetorical strategy that seems to work. Savonarola was an unarmed prophet, but if you combine this apocalyptic narrative with the power and strength of arms, maybe you'll be more on your way to governing Florence in a reasonable manner. Um, that's that's possible, uh, it, but I but I I really hinge a lot on the intelligibility reading. That's fantastic, and actually I think that's a really perfect way for us to segue to the second major thinking example in your book, Hobbes, because in a sense everything you've said there makes a lot of intuitive sense, right? Machiavelli is working with this world, but it's to some extent, unintelligible. So fortune is capricious. She's a woman who prefers young men who are handsome, who then need to mm. dominate her. But she, in the easy sense, it's only ever about 50% your skill. Now, there's a whole portion of politics that's just out of your control, and you've just got to get a bit lucky sometimes. And, and you can see how that kind of worldview meshes quite well with what we've been saying about the apocalypse as something which is probably beyond your control, but may offer a certain redemption. There's a certain mysticism. Maybe mysticism isn't quite quite the right word, but but something unknowable about politics which makes it fundamentally untamable. And you can see how that fits with an apocalyptic imaginary. So therefore, it's very striking that the next figure in your in your historical study is Hobbes, who is the guy who comes along and says, no, it's all science. If we get our first principles right, we understand that the universe is matter in motion. And if we do proper definitions and proper logical deductions, one thing we can certainly get rid of is this nonsense from Italy, which says it's OK to have riots and that freedom is people overthrowing the kings they don't like and, and constantly having revolutions. And, and so this guy comes, you know, he's got a completely different worldview or he's attempting to in some ways. Hobbes has many targets, but one of his targets is Machiavelli, and he's trying to eliminate that Florentine, Renaissance, Italian way of thinking. And yet, as you show in your book, he also is somebody who has an important, um, oh, he has important things to say and things to do. So he puts the apocalyptic imaginary to important uses. So, so please tell us, you know, how does this other guy, who on the face of it is so different, nonetheless end up saying something which is in some ways continuous? 
Yes. So you're entirely right that Hobbes, like Machiavelli, is involved in a project of intelligibility. In many ways, they make strange bedfellows, but they have both been, and we can come back to this, um, seen as the key early modern figures in a very self-consciously constructed tradition of political realism, a tradition that insists on the autonomy of politics, that insists on the priority of order and stability over the demands of justice. And so they, it's, it's not just me who makes them bedfellows. They've, we've made them bedfellows uh, for, for centuries. But what I want to focus us on right now is something that we often neglect about Hobbes and his context, and it's the religious dimension of his context. This part of his context, I think, explains a lot of the parts of Leviathan that we, uh, that we don't always read, that we don't always teach to students. I say that even in my specialist third year course on Leviathan, where we just read Leviathan for 10 weeks, we actually only read a little bit of book three and four, um, because even though the goal was to read as much of it as we can, it, it's still very hard not to, not to end up leaving it out, um, which is frustrating in many ways. It's, it's, it's a steep learning curve these days, I think, for students. You not only have to have some familiarity with scripture, you have to have some familiarity about the debates that were being had about scripture in Hobbes's time, which were often quite, quite strange debates. But I think the, one of the things that's really striking about Hobbes's context and the larger context of the, uh, of the Civil War in Britain, or if you want to call it the Civil Wars, the collection of uh, conflicts, that apocalypticism was rife on both sides of that conflict. And it's, it's not hard to see why. It was an absolutely devastating conflict that tore Britain apart. It's not crazy to have thought, if you were either on the parliamentarian side or the royalist side, that you were in a battle for the end times. And that is that is lurking back there in the background to Hobbes. He, he saw, albeit from afar, <laughs> he was, as Al Martinick likes to point out, a physical coward, though not a moral one. So he, But he's watching this from uh, from France, and he's seen it seen it unfold, and he's seen people on both sides appeal to the language and imagery of apocalypticism to make sense of their times, and what they were doing when they were drawing on that, both from the high church Anglicans on the royalist side to the radical Puritans on the parliamentarian side, is they were drawing on a Protestant tradition of apocalypticism that had emerged in England. It was, it was a tradition that saw the Pope and indeed Catholics as the forces of Antichrist who had to be stamped out. And that, that served a really important purpose in the England of Queen Elizabeth I's time, of James I's time, because it helped to unite and galvanize Britain politically against its Catholic enemies. Think of how important it is, for instance, as the Spanish Armada is bearing down, to have this unifying narrative that you are battling the forces of Antichrist. The problem becomes, under Charles I, that the, the, the worry about Charles is that he's too close to Catholicism. He's, ma he's married to a Catholic. He seems to be embracing these church rituals and ceremonies that smack of popishness, to use a term of derision of the time. And so what do you do with that as a, as a, uh, as a Protestant English person, you have been told for quite some time now that Catholics and the Pope are the forces of Antichrist. And now the Antichrist isn't over there in Spain, it's at home in England. And, and so a lot, of, uh, a lot of the people we now, for better or worse, call Puritans thought, well, my king is allied with Antichrist. I have a duty uh, to 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 rebel and to overthrow him. Now, for Hobbes, that that is a nightmare scenario for someone who values order and stability. 
having people about who view it as a religious duty to disobey their sovereign it is a nightmare scenario. And, I, and Hobbes is not crazy to think that there was something immensely destabilizing about this. If you read the, the, the fast sermons, the, uh, the English parliament uh, initiated a series of uh, sermons on fast days in 1640. And they brought some very radical preachers in to give these sermons. And so uh, the, the one that stands out to me is Stephen Marshall stands before parliament and says, if, if it is to avenge God against the forces of antichrists that everyone on the parliament, parliamentarian side must be willing to take babies by their heels and beat out their brains against the walls. He says that the people willing to do that are blessed. It's drawing on, I think, Psalm 137 there. And, and so this, this is a speech being made before Parliament. It was a speech that was later printed with the, uh, at the behest of Parliament. And so Hobbes is looking on and seeing these developments and realizes how utterly destabilizing this kind of apocalyptic enthusiasm can be. And, and so I think that helps us to understand why so much of the second half of Leviathan is taken up with questions of prophecy, divided allegiance. What do you do when your preacher asks something of you that runs against your obligations as a subject? It also makes sense of this uh, very strange moment in chapter 42. Chapter 42 is one of those chapters you don't want to teach to your students because it just drags on, drags on forever. And it's yeah, mostly we, we taken up. <laughs> yeah, it's mostly taken up with lengthy response to Cardinal Bellarmine on the issue of uh, ecclesiastical jurisdiction. And, and Hobbes is refuting Bellarmine point for point, and then he gets, to, he gets to one point in Bellarmine's argument where Bellarmine says, the Pope is not the Antichrist. And Hobbes says, oh no, I, I, I have to agree with that. Because he, he recognizes the, how that belief that the, Pope's, the Pope and Catholics as a whole were allied with the forces of Antichrist had come to, to be so dangerous in England. And so if you think about, uh, if you think about that whole second half of Leviathan, so much of it is about responding to the destabilizing potential of apocalyptic ideas. And so he says, the, he's, he recognizes these are powerful and appealing and seductive ideas. He talks about the, the prophets who kind of play the part of godly men and are able to play on our anxiety about the future to, to get us to do their bidding. Um, they should always, as Hobbes points out, be suspected of ambition and, and imposture. And, and so I think once we take, and, and, well, let me add to that too, that I think there's a whole very curious discussion of hell and the resurrection in the second half of Leviathan. It, I sometimes tell my students what it amounts to is hell, not so bad as you thought. Um, Hobbes has this really radical reimagining of hell and the end of days in order to kind of diminish the force of that threat of eternal torment on us. And you think, well, why would he want to do that? Well, it's because he realizes that you're in a real sticky problem as someone who wants to defend order and stability. If your sovereign makes a demand of you and you think, well, what's the price for not obeying my sovereign? The worst you're gonna, that's gonna happen to you is death. And then you've got the godly man on the street corner telling you that you've got a duty to disobey your king. And if you go with him and fight on the parliamentarian side, you will have an eternity of blessedness in a new Jerusalem. And if you don't do it, you're going to be condemned to eternal torment. He can threaten you with something worse than your sovereign. Eternal torment in the fiery pits of hell is so much worse than mortal death.
And so Hobbes wants to level the playing field. He wants to take that threat of hell out of the arsenal of those apocalyptic prophets. And so he has this, this elaborate redescription of hell and the end of days where all hell is is a second mortal death. It's not that bad. And he's got a similarly deflationary account of heaven. I like to think of his account of heaven as it's, um, it's true what the song says, heaven is a place on earth. Heaven will be an earthly kingdom. And it's sort of Leviathan state part two, just with Christ as your king. So, you know, not, not that enticing. So there's a, there's a whole deflationary part to his reading. And, and I, think that, I, th I think that the second half of Leviathan really starts to make sense to us when we understand how much these, these apocalyptic ideas and other forms of prophecy were immensely politically destabilizing. And after all, Hobbes tells us what his purpose was in writing Leviathan. And he doesn't say, my purpose was to reason geometrically toward uh, an, an account of, of the legitimate state. What he tells us is his purpose in writing Leviathan was to absolve God's laws of the charge that they legitimate rebellion. He looks around, he sees people drawing on uh, the scriptural um, accounts of God's will and what God wants of us to legitimate rebellion, and he is going to fight against that. He wants to absolve the law, God's laws of that charge. They do not legitimize rebellion. They legitimize obedience and order and subjection to your sovereign. And that's the project of Leviathan that comes much more strongly into view. That's, that's fantastic and really clear. The only thing I'd, I'd, I'd like you to add to that is just to expand a little bit on something that really stood out for me in the book, which is that you argue that in the final instance, Hobbes actually ends up endorsing something like the apocalyptic imaginaries, as you put it, most radical hopes. Because one aspect of Leviathan is Hobbes is often portrayed as you know, a pessimistic thinker. Somebody thinks all humans are evil and selfish and they're the natural condition of mankind, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short. But I think actually the, the, the closer reading, and this is something that David Runciman at Cambridge has, has urged in several contexts, including his own podcast, which is that actually Leviathan is an extremely optimistic book. It's a, it's a book about how despite all of the, the, the things that are wrong with us, we can actually achieve incredible things. We can achieve peace, stability, order, civilization itself. And but, but it goes beyond that. And, and, and one thing you bring out in your reading is ultimately there is a utopianism about Leviathan. There's a final vision here. He's, he sort of oscillates a little bit. Sometimes he looks almost in despair at his own vision. You know, that, that maybe he feels like he's almost pushed it too far himself, that this vision of Leviathan as putting an end to human conflict maybe is, is as ridiculous as Plato's Republic. Um, but one thing you suggest in your reading is that what he's doing there is in part adopting the apocalyptic imaginaries idea that we could get beyond this veil of tears maybe not in Hobbes's view maybe we could hopefully do it without the burning fire and the, the, the purification part because he thinks that's not going to lead to anything other than more war but but that suggestion you have that, that even Hobbes comes out of this sharing something with these people I found really striking I think that's I think that's right. So so I uh, I just talked about his argument in the in the second half in the scriptural half of Leviathan, and in your reader you're asking us to think about uh, the argument in what we often call the philosophical or the secular front front end of of Leviathan, and one way to look at what he's doing there is he's borrowing some of that plot some of, of the apocalyptic imaginary. And so what does he do? He, uh, he offers us a terrifying vision of the state of nature, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, the perpetual and restless des desire for power after power that ceaseth only in death, um, you know, pretty bad, but not to worry. <laughs> There's a way to bring this to, to an end. And uh, and it is it is the Leviathan state from the from the condition of total war war on Hobbes's 
own peculiar definition of it, of the state of nature, arises this Leviathan state. It's gonna, it's a commonwealth ruled by a mortal god. It is in a very real sense, our worldly salvation. Salvation for Hobbes means nothing more than the provision of life. And the Leviathan state for everything we might worry about it, one, one thing Hobbes wants to reassure us of is if we subject ourselves to this virtually absolute state, then we do achieve a kind of salvation. We're no longer subject to the, what I like to think of as the premature stupid deaths that we die in the state of nature. You can live out your life in the Leviathan state. And Hobbes wants you to consider that that really is salvation. And it, it, so one way to think about it is, it is it's a secularized vision of that apocalyptic narrative, the, the terror and the war um, the, the deep disagreement of the state of nature is the necessary prelude to a uh, stable, orderly Leviathan state, a state that, as, as you asked us to think about in terms of Hobbes's utopianism, a state that Hobbes at times hopes will be perpetual, will be everlasting. And, and so I do see something utopian in that, I, I, it's it's a suggestion that uh, you're right that Runciman has made. It's also Richard Tuck uh, sees this kind of utopian dimension in Hobbes, and I, I think one of the things that uh, that really makes that reading powerful for me is is if you think about it. Our kind of Hobbes 101 gloss that is often given to undergraduates is Hobbes thinks that we are all basically instrumentally rational beings motivated primarily by a fear of violent mortal death. I don't think it's at all clear that that is his empirical description of human beings. The human beings we get in Leviathan are, uh, are religious, they have, they have fears that are worse than death. They fear hell. They have hopes that are more powerful than mere mortal life. They hope for heaven. Or think about the vainglorious, right? What's the problem with the vainglorious? They have something they fear more than death. They fear being dishonored and diminished in the eyes of their fellows. And they have things they hope for more than life. They want to be honored. They want other people to acknowledge, um, acknowledge their great virtues or strength or superiority. And, and that's Hobbes's empirical description of human beings. The, the, the human being who can be made to obey the Leviathan state because they fear nothing more um, powerful than mortal death and hope for nothing more than life, that is the optimistic vision. That, that's Hobbes's utopianism, that if you can diminish the power of these religious uh, imaginaries, if you can, through a combination of carrots and sticks, really diminish the effect of vainglory on citizens, that you'll be able to create the kind of people who fear nothing more than death and hope for nothing more than life. That's the optimistic vision. That's not Hobbes the empiricist. That's Hobbes the utopian. Absolutely. Just to back up and again to segue, uh, two things you said there really uh, st stood out. Hobbes' vision of, you know, let's avoid the stupid premature death, right? That's the kind of death you want to avoid. And on the flip side, the potential of a state that might last forever, might last permanently. And that stands in stark contrast to then if you, the third thinker um, that you examine in your book, of course, because Hans Morgenthau, what he was particularly preoccupied with was the threat of nuclear apocalypse. Um, and if a nuclear apocalypse means anything, it means lots of stupid premature death and the state most definitely not lasting forever. Um, so it, in some ways, it seems like a large jump to go from the 17th to the 20th century. But tell us more about Morgenthau and that version of the apocalyptic imaginary. 
Yeah, so Hans Morgenthau is a is an interesting figure here. Like Hobbes and Machiavelli, he is often taken to be one of the key figures in this tradition of political realism. That's one thing that uh, unites them across the across the centuries. Uh, Morgenthau is a is a German Jewish emigre who who leaves uh, Europe and comes to America in the 1930s and uh, and in a way brings a lot of U- European ideas and ways of making sense of the world to America and it it, it makes uh, he's you can often sense he's very ill at ease with some of the uh, American optimism and as we'll see some of the some of the American uniquely American um, apocalyptic thinking around nuclear weapons and so uh, there there are, there are several different aspects to Morgenthau's context that I think are lurking in the background one is a unsurprisingly Nazism and uh, the Nazi ideology at work in, um, in, in the Germany that he had to flee. It, Nazis, some of them at least, held apocalyptic visions. They did think they were in a struggle of good versus evil. Um, they thought that the political convulsions and upheavals of the interwar years would were the crisis that would eventually bring forth a new world, as, uh, as Gregor Strasser put it. Um, and uh, and and you see it at work too in the in in the very imagery of a Third Reich. Um, there's a there's a kind of millennial strain, the thousand year, um, the thousand year reign that is at the core of of Nazi ideology. So that's lurking in the background. Morgenthau sees Nazism as a, as a secularized eschatology or vision of the end times. For what it's worth, he also sees elements of that in Soviet communism as well, that the current class struggle is just the necessary prelude to a, a classless society and a communist utopia. And interestingly, Morgenthau also sees that kind of apocalyptic worldview at work in liberalism. And so it's not just Nazism and communism. This is where he's really attuned to what is, um, I think, uh, to his European eyes, so strange about America. And his his focus is especially on uh, the kind of liberalism that we associate with Woodrow Wilson, the claim that Wilson made that World War I would be the final and culminating war for human liberty, that it would usher in a permanent peace and a kind of liberal millennium. Morgenthau is very clear about what he thinks about that. He says it's nothing less than the repudiation of politics. It is a fantasy that this will just be the last war after which everything will be terrific. Um, and that is a fantasy for Morgenthau that has to be rejected. So there, there's a cluster of ideologies at work and lurking in the background in his context. He thinks we're very, um, we're very drawn in our ideological thinking to just secularizing that apocalyptic imagery. Also lurking in the background, of course, too, is the Holocaust. Um, I think there was a it's a really great essay by Elie Wiesel, where he says something to the effect of to the extent that people like him who lived through the concentration camps, to the extent that they believe in the apocalypse, it's the one they lived through. It's it's memory rather than prophecy or vision. So that's another element that in, in many ways the Holocaust had been a lived apocalypse. It was also very revelatory. It was revelatory of the degree to which the apparent assimilation of Jews into German society in all ranks um, could be undone really quickly. And then, of course, as you mentioned, it's the dawn of the nuclear era. And and we often think about this, we sometimes think about the nuclear end of the world, especially after the advent of the, the H-bomb, which had the capacity to do with the hydrogen bomb a lot more damage than the atom bomb. 
we think about all out nuclear war as an apocalypse without that element of redemption that we talk, it just is the end of the world. Now, that, that's, that's a common idea, but one of the strange things, especially in the American case, is there was a fair bit of redemption talk around. There were Christian conservatives who uh, actively embraced this, uh, a Christian reading of thermonuclear weapons, that they might be able to bring about the end of the world foretold in Revelation. And somewhat disturbingly, you even see uh, pretty prominent U.S. politicians being drawn into that, that kind of view. Reagan, when he was still governor of California admitted that he held something something like that view and I think was told quite reasonably when he ran for president to probably to hush up about that and um, not make much of it. It's, it's worrying to have uh, someone in charge of the uh, new American nuclear arsenal have um, redemptive apocalyptic views. But there was also in Morgenthau's time through the 1960s, a fair bit of kind of secular redemption talk. You see this at the height of the fallout shelter movement in the 1960s. Um, magazines like Time and Life ran features on civil defense that showed happy families emerging from their fallout shelters ready to build the world anew. You see it in people like Herman Kahn, um, wonderfully parodied um, or satirized in Dr. Strangelove, who had very optimistic views about how quickly we could recover from an all-out nuclear war. And so that's that all of that is lurking in the background for Morgenthau, this worrying, and I think he thinks uniquely American, kind of apocalyptic optimism about uh, about all-out nuclear war, plus the um, the deep uh, wound left by the Holocaust, the sense that in a, in a way the apocalypse had already happened, and this acute um, sense he had that 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 apocalyptic imagery and uh, narratives run their way through the three dominant ideologies of the mid 20th century, Nazism, communism, and uh, kind of aggressive liberal internationalism. One thing you, you said there about Reagan, um, believing that you know there might even be a redemptive aspect in nuclear war, struck a chord because one thing that I, I suppose people out, I mean, you're, you're of course, you work in California, but you're Canadian. So you may be able to identify this in similar to, to myself as a European. One of the things that we found most shocking and also mildly terrifying in, in under, for example, the, the second Bush administration was the revelation that were people, senior Republicans in positions in, in the Senate and in, in, uh, in, in various state offices who were very blasé about what to us seems like the apocalyptic you know, threat of the day, which is climate change saying that, well, you know, yeah. uh, if that's going to happen, it's part of God's plan and, and there's nothing to worry about uh, because the earth was made for us to use anyway. So, you know, uh, we're going to not bother with environmental regulations. Um, now, of course, America is a, a large and diverse place with many different political views. Um, but but, but that, that struck me uh, to go from there to something that you mentioned to me when we were discussing this conversation before we recorded this conversation that there is a tendency for every age to think that it's living through apocalypse um, and sometimes that's more justified than others um, so I suppose now would be a good time to ask you uh, what can we learn from the history of political thought in particular with regards to the question of apocalypse about how to maybe understand and temper our own ideas and our own situation given everything that's happening in the world at the moment for posterity we're recording this in june 2020 um you'll know whether we're at, we're really at the nadir or future future listeners may know we've still got some horrible things coming right now it feels pretty apocalyptic with um, the, the coronavirus pandemic and uh, and all the other issues that we all know about um but what could we maybe learn from the history of political thought about our own preoccupations with apocalypse well I think that there may just be something comforting in how many 
ages, you know, that it, from Renaissance Florence to 17th century England to mid 20th century America thought that they were living at the edge of uh, edge of time, living at the end of end of days. So, so that if we think that now, I mean, one one way to look at it is comforting, as you can look back and say, well, other people have thought this, and we've gotten through it. I think the un uncharitable thing to say is that it's it's the narcissism of every era to think that the terrible things that they face amount to the end of the world. But I think the slightly more charitable thing to say is that apocalyptic thinkers, like many of us, have a tendency to universalize the particular. You know, for the for Savonarola or for the English Puritans in Hobbes's time, their particular circumstances and they they were they were facing deep crises, took on a kind of universal significance. And so their own community, if we take the case of the Puritans, uh, Britain became a cosmic battleground for humanity. Now, in, in doing that, they or us are no different than the author of the book of Revelation himself, John of Patmos. Um, John also universalized the particular. There he is, likely uh, you know, of, of Palestinian Jewish ancestry, we think, uh, living through the trauma of Roman imperial rule. And how does he make sense of that? He makes sense of it by universalizing the particular, uh, taking that particular uh, crisis of living as a, as a member of a persecuted minority community in the Roman Empire and investing it with cosmic significant. So in some way, when we look at the crises of our time and think, oh my gosh, it's the end of the world, we're, we're, doing, we're doing something that humans have done for a long, long time. But I think that, I, I think one of the things we can learn from seeing how Machiavelli and Hobbes and Morgenthau respond to hopes and fears about the end of the world is we can learn something about um, about both the, the appeal and the dangers of thinking apocalyptically. And we've talked a little bit about why it's appealing. It's, it's appealing in part because it does give the crises that you're going through a certain cosmic significance. It gives you a kind of world historical importance. Some people may be after that. It's also a way of making sense of your world, of giving meaning to it so much better to think that the crises we're undergoing are part of some kind of plan or are the, a door opening to a better world rather than they're just the same damn thing that humans have gone through again and again through time. That is, that, that is a bleak um, view to have of the world. And the apocalyptic worldview, can, insofar as it incorporates an element of redemption, it doesn't always. Um, but insofar as it does, that can be very reassuring. It can also be, ex oh, yeah. I feel I have to jump in because I imagine some listeners will at this point be screaming at their iPad or their, their, their laptop and going, yeah, but this time it really is different. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So yeah, but of course the apocalypse wasn't really coming in in, in Florence and, and and these crazy preachers in England. They were, of course they were wrong, and and we you know we dodged a bullet with the nuclear holocaust, but it was always in our power. But this time with climate change, this time it really is different. Um, so so what might you say to somebody who who wanted to push back and say, well yeah okay we can learn something from this uh, from the the, the 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 fact that human beings have a tendency to do this, but but maybe. We, we don't want to overbalance too far in that direction because that will fail to wake us up to the fact that this time it's not the same. It's a really, it's a really hard balance. I mean, I, I guess I, I would point out once again, everyone throughout history who thought the world was ending said to themselves, this time it's not the same. This time it's really happening. But the time, but the time that it really isn't the same is the time that it really matters. <laughs> I'll just I'll just say that apocalyptic beliefs have been a set of beliefs that have been so resilient to disconfirmation 
that that the phenomenon, you know, that the phenomenon warrants a lot of study. They have a hold over us in spite of the fact that every time people have put a date on the expected end of the world, you know, Isaac Newton drove himself crazy trying to calculate the precise chronology of the end of the world. But we have been wrong about it every time. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen sometime. Um, but I just, uh, I just ask us to think about that. But I think one of the things that you're pointing out, though, also points to another reason why we might be drawn to apocalyptic thinking. And that's that it, it can be useful. So think of, think of what, how people have harnessed those bleaker visions of apocalypse to try to motivate us. Um, think about climate change activists. Uh, David Wallace Wells, most recently, uh, his book, The Uninhabitable Earth, he paints a dark, bleak, overtly apocalyptic picture of the effects of climate change. It, it is a picture that, uh, that dramatizes what climate scientists call the fat tale of risk. It's the, the, um, the, the worst case scenarios of climate change. And he, he paints the picture of both the ecological destruction, but also the wars and the um, refugee crises and the battles over resources that are gonna come from this. And he's doing it for a purpose. He's trying to shake us out of our complacency and to cultivate a kind of a rational fear of this existential threat. And, and if you're trying to do that, you're, you are going to say this time it is different. This time we really do face the extinction of, of humanity. And, and so I think, I think we have to be attuned to that dimension of apocalyptic uh, thinking as well, that, that there are a lot of smart strategic actors trying to motivate a recalcitrant humanity to actually gather up the political will and the individual motivation to save ourselves. Um, and they're using apocalyptic imagery as well. And uh, we might have some questions about how effective it is. We could certainly talk about that, but it's certainly understandable for them to be grasping for that way of thinking about it. That was just fantastic. We could talk for many, many more hours about this, but now I think uh, we should probably stop there. That's a, that's a really great place to end. I just want to say thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much, Paul. This is really fun.